0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I've just returned from traveling for the last nearly six weeks in Europe and in North Africa and Morocco, which was quite amazing and wonderful culture. I might talk about that on another evening, the graciousness and tolerance of that particular culture. It was also 124 degrees in Marrakesh, so there was that. But interesting, anyway. Um, and teaching in France for the first time. I've taught often in Europe, but never in France, and was teaching to a group that was organized by the Main mindfulness association that's doing mindfulness in clinics and schools and hospitals and various places like that. And it was really interesting to be in it, in the French culture because when they invited me, they said, don't make it Buddhist. We had enough <laughs> trouble. We had enough trouble with the Catholic Church. We don't want to. You know, make it scientific. I said, how about compassion? No, 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 don't talk about love or compassion. Make it scientific. I said, it's France, love, you know, come on. (laughs) Um, And when I got there, um, it was, was, people had had a a kind of religious injury, this subset of the people anyway, and didn't want a, a new religion laid on them. I was quite sympathetic to that. I said, you don't have to be a Buddhist. Much better to be a Buddha, you know, that and spare your friends and family, the Buddhist stuff. Um, but the style of the teaching and the questions was uniquely French. It was philosophical and existential and scientific and literary. And they wanted to talk about, you know, Proust and Remembrance and, and Rimbaud and, you know, and we went out and had wonderful wine for lunch in the middle of the day teaching. It was great. Um, <laughs> And the, the, um, uh, and of course, as it went on, they became, once they felt um, like they weren't trying to be converted to something, people became very interested. Would you like to hear the traditional training in forgiveness? Yes. All these hands, okay, we can do that. Compassion, okay. Now. Um, but, uh, and there was a big panel, wonderful com- conversation between a philosopher, a physicist, several physicians, all of whom had become meditation teachers in some way or other. Um, And uh, one of the physicians who started, there was a whole group, said, you know, he said, I've been a, I guess he's done internal medicine, and I've been an epidemiologist, I've done all these things. And he said, and I'm just going to start with the bare facts, he said. (laughs) Um, In the clinic where I work, especially because I'm working a bit with an older population, 70% of the people age 55 have one, just generally in the population, have one chronic illness, which would be diabetes or arthritis or high blood pressure. By age 65, 90% of of human beings in Western culture have one chronic illness and 70% have two chronic illnesses that they're dealing with. He said, so don't think that it's not going to happen to you or that it's not normal your body ages and it gets sick. This is like one of the Buddhist teachings, one of the Buddhist texts. And he said, so we have our medicine and our science to bring to bear on this. But what I discovered is that people also need to be tended in their souls. So if they come and they've had cancer or they have diabetes or they have these various conditions and so forth, not only do they need the medicine, but they need to be able to speak about it and have meaning for it and have a way to work with it. And so he started, and then all the other physicians who were there jumped in talking about what it meant to tend to not just the bodies of people, but their hearts or their spirit. And it became a really beautiful um, conversation. And so there I was in these different cultures, as as you are when you travel, Um, and then I come back here. And it's strange when you're away. It's like the world disappears, some new world appears. And there I am in the marketplaces of Marrakesh, you know, the spice market or something. And now it's um Whole Foods in Santa <laughs> Fe. Okay. All right, it's different. And the changes in my own life. I just turned sixty-seven, I'm aging, bodily changes, changes in, you know, marriage and how I'm living and all these different things. And just kind of looking at my own life anew and feeling the turning of it all um, the inevitable turning of it Um, and there's this poem that, where is it what happened Uh, let's see yeah that many of you know from Wendell Berry one of kind of repeated and recited. Of course, in, in cultures that love poetry, people would memorize these. Um, when despair grows in me, which can happen in modern times with the environment and the continuing warfare and all this madness, and I wake in the middle of the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. And for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And to come and meditate as we have tonight and, as happened for so many people in this beautiful hall over the last years, is to come and center ourselves like Wendell speaks about lying down with the wood drake, to step out of the busyness of our lives and come back to the mystery of our own breath, our own body, our own life, in this great churning whirlwind the samsaric whirlwind of existence that keeps changing to find some still point in the center of it. The point isn't so much to make a particular experience happen, although they do in meditation, and it's nice when you get quieter or more spacious or more peaceful, but it doesn't last. You know why? Because everything changes. And the point isn't to oh, have great experience and hold your breath and say, "Oh, I got it!" Now oh, I got it. So peaceful. Because <laughs> sooner or later you're going to have to exhale, you know. <coughs> Even though they claim not to have inhaled, you know. Um, the world is still full of divinity and strangeness. The scientists stop where all humans do at the doors of birth and death. She knows no more than you or I why a seed remembers the oak of 20 million years ago, why dust acquires the form of a woman, how consciousness can behold a rainbow in space and time. She hasn't yet solved the secret of a single name upon the earth. We may try to pluck the nymph from the river, but we won't pluck the river from ourselves. There are sacred places everywhere. The world is still our holy grove where we wander, hunting for the tree of life under which we already live. And so to come and sit is more than anything to quiet ourselves and open to this mysterious, changing incarnation that you somehow got yourself into. (laughs) Nobody quite knows how, but here we are in the middle of it. And here we are in the middle of this glorious summer. And one of the strange things about summer is that it starts with the longest day of the year. And then it starts to get shorter. The summer, actually, the light gets less. It starts with the longest day. So already in its fullness, you can feel its turning of the seasons. And I was on Mount Tam a couple of months ago during that um uh, passage of Venus across the face of the sun went to the top of Mount Tam, and there was a guy with a great big telescope it was fantastic and the, the filters and you could watch this little round dot move across the face of the sun and realize it's more or less the same size as our planet and about hmm, 40% of the way or 30% of the way to this huge star and it was amazing to watch it and think oh yeah well we're like that, we're all just out a little further doing our dance and, When I was in France, um, we visited different cathedrals. At a previous time, I went to the great um, cathedral, Chartres Cathedral in Chartres. I wanted to walk the labyrinth, um, which is very famous there. Well, it turns out that most of the week, the labyrinth is covered by folding chairs. (laughs) But one afternoon a week, they take the chairs off so people can walk in. Okay, I lucked out. I was there that afternoon. So I go very piously and I think about people who for a thousand years walked on their knees and prayed and came and did this labyrinth. And I start to walk it. There are other people walking it too. And it's a pretty big, beautiful stone labyrinth in the floor. And if you've ever walked the labyrinth, which probably quite a few of you have, you follow these little courses toward the middle and then you come out and you go back again. And with other people walking, it felt like the music of the spheres because we didn't run into each other, we were each doing this dance and passing one another in this beautiful way, like Venus and Mars and Jupiter, everything kind of dancing as they should in harmony, and it was quite magic. But then, <laughs> there were some Russian and American tourists in shorts with cameras very loud, The sort of, you know, the, we could easily cari- make a caricature of them, Who not only got out of their buses and came to see Shark Cathedral, but they walked right across the middle of the labyrinth, oblivious to the fact that we were all meditating piously and walking slowly in the music of the spheres. So there came in me at first a state that I then recognized and named as irritation. (laughs) Ah yes, there we are, the spheres and irritation, what are they doing here, you know? And I noticed that, and I named it, and I kept walking. And then an image came, and I realized, oh, they're like comets. (laughs) They come from way out of the solar system, and once in a while they come through, disrupt, and then they pass by, and I continued to walk. And it was just fine. Thank you. But this is the way it goes. Um, we have our plans, and then the comets come in, or something changes in some other way. Um, and there is no end to this changing dance. T.S. Eliot says, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. So we're always starting a new And when we sit in meditation, the point isn't to get something and hold it, but to take our seat in the mystery of this great turning of life, of the number of breaths we're given and the heartbeats that we're given. And of course we have a lot of stories about it, um, about how it should be, you know, and how we should live and how other people should live. There was a show I saw a little part of Some years ago on television, it was a panel about heaven. Maybe it was Bill Moyers, I'm not sure. But there was a you know, leading elders from different religious traditions. There was a Baptist and a Mormon and a Catholic and a Muslim and a Hindu and a Tibetan Lama. And they all were asked very pointedly to describe what heaven was like. They had different descriptions, which was interesting. And then they were all asked the criteria of who was going to get to heaven. And they had different criteria, which meant that you guys on the other end or gals of the very panel, none of them would get in our heaven, you know. And it was really interesting to hear the stories. So when my daughter, Cindy, was in first grade, we took a trip to California to visit my family, a little story for you. While we were there, she lost a tooth. She ran in the kitchen to show me and asked if the tooth fairy could fly this far all the way from the... East Coast. My mom shot a look of concern later and later suggested that by indulging in such fantasies I was teaching my child not to trust adults. Wasn't Cindy gonna feel betrayed when she found out the truth? I pointed out that my mother hadn't seemed to have a problem with the tooth fairy when I was growing up and I turned out fine. But nevertheless the next time Cindy lost a tooth she chattered with excitement as I put her to bed. How does the tooth fairy get in, she asked. Through the window, I explained. Shouldn't we unlock it then, she asked. Oh, I always do that right before I go to sleep, I replied. Why does the tooth fairy want everybody's teeth, she asked. I took a deep breath and considered my mother's advice. Cindy would soon figure out the truth anyway, so I told my inquisitive seven-year-old that in fact I was the tooth fairy. She cried hard. I apologized and explained that she was getting to an age at which it was more important for me to be honest with her than to play imaginary games. We cuddled for a while, and she stopped crying. She had one last question. What do you wear? (laughs) Oh... Humans are amazing, and the mind will do anything. It really will. It's fantastic. And so we, here we are in this midst of, you know, birth and death and human incarnation. Um, there's a Serbian proverb, Be humble, for you are made of mud. Be noble, for you are made of stars. And you are. You're made of congealed starlight that created the planet Earth as Brian Swim, the cosmologist says four and a half billion years ago the earth was a flaming ball of rock that had been strewn out of the stars and now it can sing opera. You know, and it somehow created life and created you. Um, So you're stars and yet you can't ignore your uniqueness, your individuality. You have to remember both your Buddha nature and your social security number. (laughs) And you have an individuality, which is your unique race and history and tribe and the lessons you've learned and the family that you've come from. But it's not all of who you are. You're greater than that. And when it's misunderstood and people cling to it, then you get racism and tribalism and, you know, rapacious development and all the kinds of things where people forget that they're not really separate, or that that identity is only a limited part of who they are. For like the seasons, the self, who you are, is a process. It's not fixed. It's transparent and impermanent. Mary Oliver writes, she says, for years and years I struggled just to love my life which is a great line. It's half of spiritual practice right there. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And that's the balance. Teach us to care and not to care, is T.S. Eliot's words. Um, To treasure what we have, and at the same time not hold on to it so tightly, because it's going to change. And if you hold on, you get rope burn. So we can shift our consciousness from the limited identity that we have to tend to and recognize the small sense of self to the vastness that is our own true nature. And I like to talk about how simple it is when you look in the mirror and notice, as I did turning 67, notice that you've grown older. And you look a little older, you do when you look in, but the weird thing is that you don't feel older. And that's very common. That's because it's only your body that has grown older. Body exists in time. But the consciousness that's looking in the mirror is going, hmm, look at that. Drooping, losing its fur, more wrinkles, you know, all that stuff. But it knows that that's not who you really are. You know that. It's so immediate. And so what matters as we practice, the invitation of spiritual life meditation is both to honor the personal and the unique of your particular incarnation, but also to remember this mystery, the spirit that you were born with, that you were born into. So Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, left his monastery one time and went down to Louisville. He said, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people and that they were mine and I theirs and we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness and false isolation and monastic holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy I laughed out loud on the street. I have the immense joy of being a member of the race in which the divine spark becomes incarnate. There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. And so to sit is to step out of time, out of the tyranny of time, what Huxley called the idolatrous religion of time and progress, that you're going to get stuff done and that that will give you know, the final meaning to your life. To step out of the focus on the future and planning and remembering and imagining and actually open to the mystery of being alive. To come and rest in the reality of the present. Because there's so many things that want to pull us away from the mystery. When I was in Jerusalem a few years ago, you know, you can go to the, the last old wall of Solomon's Temple, the Western Wall, People will fold their prayers and stick in the cracks of these great big stones. <clears throat> well, there's a shop near there <clears throat> where you can email your prayers or tweet them. <laughs> and for a small fee, they'll print them out and fold them and stick them in the stones for you. You know, okay. Dear God, I just want you to know in this email that I have been thinking of you. you know. But meditation um, allows you to put down your mobile devices, you know, and the complexity of your life for a moment, and to come to rest in the reality of the present, the still point of the turning world. And to become, as my teacher Ajahn Chah called it, the one who knows, like looking in the mirror, to be the knowing or the awareness itself, the loving awareness, that says, wow, look at what is so right now. This measure of pain, this measure of beauty, this measure of fear, this measure of joy and delight, all of the things that weave in and make your life. And it's not about fixing it or making it better or turning meditation into a a grim duty that you add to going to the gym and the chiropractor and, you know, the... um, whatever else you do to take care of yourself in your therapy and so forth. All those are good things. But it is more to keep a beginner's mind, as Suzuki Roshi says, the beginner's mind of, of mystery. Because you actually don't know what's going to happen. Really, you don't. Not a clue. I mean, with some, you get some good guesses, but then something really unexpected is going to happen. You'll say, oh, wow, you will. There are three rules for writing the great English novel, wrote Somerset Maugham. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> you know, and that's pretty much how it works. You know? So the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And you don't get it from emailing to that shop in Jerusalem. You sit. You begin to quiet your mind, open your heart, and you pay attention. You pay attention to the mystery of having a body and what it wants from you and what it needs. And the body's always changing. The 50,000 cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all the while you listen to this one sentence. And every square inch of your body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it in the course of a few days. Your body gives birth to a 100 billion red cells in your blood every day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as part of your heart cell, your kidney cell, your brain cell. This breath becomes you. That asparagus from Central Valley becomes part of your left I mean, it's really weird, incarnation. It is. It is. So to sit, you pay attention to the mystery of your body, and you tend it, to learn from it, not to hold on to it, but to respect it in some way. A Pai, Paraguay, Indian, Amazonian shaman, medicine woman, said, for us in the Pai, health is a state of respect for the body that we call tecoresai. In order to have it, different facts must be given, all which belong to health. The plants, the trees, all together are our medicine. The clean water, true and balanced words, good food, not talking over other people's heads or behind their backs, the forest, the animals in the bush, the fishes, harmony, the village community, having conversations with one another in a caring way, keeping our way of life and culture and respect for individual being, the feeling of vigor which is given to us by all the aforementioned things, the holding together of our community securely and quietly, the family, the village, our festival. And then outside people come and make us dependent on money and material things, and it destroys our state of healthiness. They get us to talk badly of others or ourselves. They get us to work not on our land. We eat food that comes out of packages. And in the end, they pull out a little, out of their pocket, a little white pill and want to make us believe that if we eat that pill, that means healthiness. That this pill is health. So to pay attention is really to, attention itself is an act of care and a kind of deep listening. And so we pay attention to this body not to possess it, but to tend its mystery and to learn from it as it changes and moves and um, as every breath comes. The breath can either calm us and center us or we can forget the breath and not really be where we are. We learn mindfulness of the body and breathing as we sit. And come into balance with it. We learn mindfulness of feelings and the seasons of emotions. And feelings are this amazing thing. I, I always when I talk about feelings, I like to read from this list of five hundred feelings, you know. <laughs> Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, anguished, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, aversive antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, antagonistic, anxious, appreciative, argumentative, adamant, addled, amazed, blissful, brokenhearted, bonkers, bored, bad, belligerent, brave, bottled up, bouncy, buoyant. You know, we have so many feelings, don't we? Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, the seasons change, gain and loss, and we have all our emotions with them. And often those feelings are not consistent. Have you noticed? You both love and hate that same person, for example, or yourself. You know me, writes Alison Luterman, I want everything and the nothing that gave birth to it, knowing I can't really have anything unless I surrender all attachment, which is tricky, somewhat akin to hiding the chocolate chips from yourself because you're on a diet. Meanwhile, only you know where those chips are hidden. (laughs) Feelings are like that. It's being human. And so you sit and you have this whole display of feelings. Uh, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas wrote, he said at the Supreme Court level where I work, 90% of our decisions are made on an emotional basis. The other 10% is used to rationalize our decisions. (laughs) You knew that was true. That doesn't surprise you. So to become mindful of the river and the mystery of feelings is liberating, just as it is to become mindful of this body, to care for it in a wise way, and to, to tend the feelings, and to be open to the full range of grief and sorrow and love and longing and delight. To open to the rhythms of your heart, you meet a lifetime's accumulation of grief and sorrow and hurt. You encounter your capacity for rage, resentment, harshness, and fear. You do. But then, you also discover your capacity for tenderness, intimacy, and joy. The Emotions are the gateway to the universal. So you sit, you're given human incarnation, this body. These feelings, the perfect thing you need to awaken, to be where you are in this mystery, and to live wisely. And then you look at the mind. Muriel Ruckheiser, the poet, says, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And your mind tells tells its stories all the time. It doesn't stop. It secretes stories the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does, one story after another. The inner dialogue, the subconscious gossip, you know. And remember that cartoon I talk about from Jules Pfeiffer, Four Little Panels. Man sitting there, I I inherited my father's way of walking and sitting and his sense of movement. I next I next uh Cartoon window, I inherited my father's um, style, his way of dressing and, you know, style of approaching things in the world. Third one, I inherited my father's way of thinking and, you know, describing and understanding the world. Last one, and I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. Right? (laughs) And there it is, all there. And we tell ourselves these stories. So what do you do with the storytelling mind? You know, the, the self-judgment and the criticism and, the, and the, the neediness and the fear and confusion and all those kinds of things. Um, to be able to see the storytelling mind and say thank you for your opinion without necessarily believing everything it tells you. Because it's going to tell you something tomorrow that's different anyway. That's really confusing. So, to have the space of awareness that says, Oh, there's a fearful story, look at that, thank you for your opinion, you know, gives you the space to rest in your heart, in the place of loving awareness, rather than lost in every different story that comes along. Mindfulness of the body and the physical incarnation, mindfulness of the emotions that make up life, of the movements of mind and the story. Mindfulness of the dharma, which means the laws, the principles, the truth, the way things are. The dharma says you can love, so it makes you happy, actually. Yet you can't grasp, or you can grasp, but it doesn't make you happy. And you'll see it with your kids. You can love them tremendously and care for them in all kinds of ways, but if you get really attached and want them to be a certain way, they don't like it and they don't respond well or try it with your lovers or your partners or your business partners or whatever. So there's a way of being in wise relationship that is caring and attentive and dedicated but not grasping. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, money doesn't make you happy. I have $48 million now. I had $43 million last year. I'm not any happier than I was. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. <laughs> he explains it all, right? Okay. But instead, if we begin to pay attention with a kind of deep attention and quietness and presence so that we have a wiser relationship to our own body, or to our emotions and all the different fears and longings and loves and desires and creativity that could be expressed. When we pay attention to the stream of thoughts without getting lost in it, then it becomes possible to have a wise relationship with those around us and with this mysterious world that we move through wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, there comes a kind of intimacy. Mindfulness is intimacy, to become intimate with the world. There are nine different words in Maya for the color blue in the comprehensive Purua Spanish Maya Dictionary, but just three Spanish translations leaving six butterflies that can be seen only by the Maya and reminding us that when a language dies, six butterflies disappear from the consciousness of the earth. And as we become still and mindful, we become able to see the fact that the person who walked in the door this afternoon is not the person who walked out of the door this morning. You know, or as I did returning back from travel, we still... We start to look anew at our own life, or the people in it, um, and keep that beginner's mind, that spirit, which makes life present, alive. The only place you're really alive is here and now. This is what we have. The rest is just thinking about it. Where are we? Let's see. A little more time. <clears throat> People come up over the course of these classes and so forth to talk about various things, including the difficulties they're going through. The man who came up who had the cancer diagnosis, you know, and is worried as is, is really natural. I'm a spiritual practitioner. I shouldn't be worried. Forget that, you know. You're waiting for your test result. You will be anxious. This is what anxi- anxiety is like this, you know. Hold that with compassion instead of judgment. Your body's worried, you know, or the person who came whose child died and who had rung the bell outside 108 times as a way of honoring their daughter and speaking to her. And everyone who was there and listened was so touched because it happens, you know. In some ways, it shouldn't happen, but it does just as it will happen to you in its own time. Richard Baker, the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, used to say to his Zen students, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them at that very moment, then you're not really practicing Zen. This is sort of the judgmental version of Zen, but that's okay. (laughs) It's all right. So he went to visit Isan Dorsey who was one of his Dharma successors and had this wonderful temple in the Castro, when he was dying, Isan was dying of AIDS, and Dick Baker came and said, I wish I could trade places with you right now. And Isan looked back and said, don't worry, you'll get your chance. (laughs) It's so. We're given a certain dance and a certain time and don't know, but what you do know is you have now. You live in now. You have this moment, this day, this earth as it's given to love, to tend, to care for, to use, to awaken. And it is so mysterious. I have um, notes from this book called The Heart's Code by uh, Dr. Paul Pearsall where he interviewed heart transplant patients because he started hearing all these strange stories. He was a cardiologist. And my favorite interview was this young Man and his mother who came back to the hospital, um, to meet the, the wife of the, of the of the wife of the, the guy whose heart this young man had received. And it turned out that the, the wife, um, and her husband who died had been driving on a road in a dark night and a huge truck collided with him. And they'd been having a, an argument just before the accident. Next thing she woke up in the hospital, she was okay but was told that her husband has died and asked if they could do organ transplant. And she was a physician and scientist, and she said, certainly. So anyway, a year later, she met this young man, this 18-year-old guy, and she said, can I listen to my, my husband's heart? And the mother was there and said, you know, the weirdest things have been happening since he got his new heart. He used to like heavy metal music, and now he mostly plays 1960s rock and roll. <laughs> she said he used to really, you know, be a big meat eater. He's turned into a vegetarian since he got his new heart, you know. And whenever I say things are problematic or whatever, and you know, he said things will work out. He, you know, he'll say, "Oh, it's okay. How are you doing?" He said, "It's all copacetic." She said, "I never heard this word, copacetic. Do you know it?" And she said, "Oh." That was the word that my husband David and I used to make up every time we had a fight. So he has all these wild stories of people getting heart transplants and strange things happening. I mean, who are you? Really? What are you made of? And what is this mysterious incarnation? What we know is so little, says Pablo Neruda. What we presume is so much. So I was in this village in Bali last year at an amazing cremation funeral thing for this older woman. And they weren't grieving. Say, said, I said, What's, what, about, what about grief? They said, she lived a good life. We grieved for a day or so. But now they were playing gamelan and dancing and offerings to the gods. And people were making prayers and doing all this beautiful thing and a great feast. And they were going to make this great pyre with her um, cremation and so forth. And I said, but aren't people sad? And they said, what, what, what are you upset about? She'll be, she'll be back next year, you know, in this village. <laughs> What's the problem? You mean you think there's only one life? <laughs> they were really confused at my concern. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, who knows, huh? But it's a lot more mysterious than you think it is. And to sit is to open to this mystery of life and to shift from the small sense of self to something which is also called the body of fear because you feel separate in it, to the one who knows, to loving awareness that says, oh, here we are, to be loving awareness itself. I used to spend time with my friend Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, when he would work with these Cambodian refugees and people who'd been through the worst kind of Holocaust, the destruction of a good part of the Cambodian society and all of its temples and all of its intellectuals and so forth, including his whole family who had been killed. And he was so joyful. Like the Dalai Lama, he had this wonderful laugh and this beautiful radiance. And he said, with all this, what matters? What matters is love. What else can I do? Can I, what, Do I want them to take over my heart? What matters is love. He was like this great kind of happy orange. He wore this bright orange robe. My daughter called him Butterball. He was like this giant kind of shining, radiant being of love. What matters? You too have a choice. That's the beautiful thing in human incarnation. They can put your body in prison, but they can't imprison your spirit. And your history is your history and needs to be attended to and honored and so forth. But it's not who you are. Who you are is so much bigger than that. You are space and time and that which is aware of space and time. And you are the awareness itself. You are actually loving awareness that has taken incarnation for a little while to try it out in this particular body you've been given, in this particular family. And wisdom sees this. It says, ah, here we are. And you'll see when you die. You'll see. You'll look back, there'll be that moment as you're leaving your body and there's all this sense of light and joy. There will be. You don't think so. I was talking to my dad when he was dying. He didn't believe me. I said, well, you, you know, you're a scientist. He said, nothing's going to happen. I'm just become dirt. I said, okay, maybe. Maybe you'll be dirt said, but maybe you'll float out of your body, and there'll be light, and and if it happens, remember, I told you so. (laughs) You'll see, and you go, oh wow, that was an amazing incarnation, wasn't it? What a trip, what a ride that one was. So then what matters? You quiet the mind, you tend to the body, you see the feelings, and learn how to be with them, rather than be overrun by them. see the stories of the mind, all with loving awareness. You bring loving awareness to your life, to your relationships, because your heart gets freer and easier. You become like a Buddha in yourself. And then what matters? Not very much. What matters is then whether you love. Did I love well? In the end, that's the main question people ask. And I I talked about this when I was teaching over at the law school at Berkeley. They have this Mindfulness in the Law Institute and so forth. I met this really amazing woman, Sujata Baliga, who's an Indian-American woman who'd grown up with some terrible abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all kinds of things like that. Very smart, got herself to the U.S., went to Harvard, went to Harvard Law School, decided to become a prosecutor and get all those men who were preying on young women, and became very good at it, and suffered a lot. And then at some point, something started to stir in her. And anyway, she ended up being at some big conference or other, and leaving a note for the Dalai Lama who was teaching in this conference, saying, I need to speak with you. And a little while later, she got a note back, come at 4.30. You know, it doesn't always happen anymore. So she went, and she kind of told her story. She'd become Harvard Law School and this great prosecutor and all these amazing things. And and he listened to her, and he said something like, um, have you suffered enough yet? So much compassion, so much tenderness. And she said she felt like that, and then the meditation retreat that he recommended and she did afterward, something just cracked in her heart, and she realized like she couldn't carry the rage and anger and crusade any further. And she's become one of the leaders in restorative justice in this nation. And she works in prisons and juvenile halls. And Restorative justice is an amazing thing because it takes people that you think would be thrown away and not worthy of anything. And if they're willing, and they're not all, and it invites them sometimes into a long, difficult process to begin to reconcile with what they've done, and to speak to others. And Here's an inmate who was in, in England writing about it. I was in prison waiting to be sentenced, and I was asked to meet some people face-to-face who had burgled for money for drugs and broken in their houses. I only did it to get out of the cell for an hour. I thought it would be easy, but it was different. When you hear about the damage you've done, when you feel the harm you've caused, you have to be a very, very bitter and twisted person For this not to affect you, I've had easier days at the old Bailey than that one, you know. And that was just just the beginning. But she works as the inside prison project that grew in San Quentin out of Spirit Rock. Works with a lot of people who've committed murder, homicide, and it's a long, very tender process to get somebody inside ready to speak with others, you know, who they may have harmed, or to have somebody outside who actually wants to confront the murder of their family member. Um, but with care, these amazing thing happens. And there was a woman who had come into San Quentin through the Restorative Justice Project, Inside Prison Project, whose son was killed in gang violence. He wasn't a gang member. Um, and it, there weren't guys in San Quentin. It wasn't that the murderer wasn't there. He was someplace far away. But she ended up speaking with some people and finally come and sitting with guys who had done that and talking to them. They wanted to talk to her. They wanted to explain to her what happened to them, and it was a long, long process. And she became friends with some of these guys. And on the 10th anniversary of her son's death, they asked her to come into prison, and the guys had cut material from their prison outfits and sewn a quilt out of it, hand-sewn, with prayers for her son, and gave her this quilt as a blessing and an atonement for all that they understood that she had suffered with their prayers for her son, written, you know, um, out of the the prison clothing that they had. And they said, we just want you to know how sorry we are for you and how we understand. And my friends who do this restorative justice work said, That they've traveled around the world and been in, you know, great temples in Borobudur and India and various places. And they've never seen anything more holy than the moment when somebody sits with another person in that deep way and says, I'm so sorry. I mean, what matters? Although the world is full of suffering, says Helen Keller, it is also full of the over- coming of it. And in the turning of the seasons, the world wants to renew itself. As Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And the heart wants to renew itself and get it right. Even on on their deathbed, you know, mobsters and dictators sometimes want to confess. They kind of want to get it right. Might be a little late, but they do. There's something in the human heart some mystery that wants to shift from the suffering that in many cases we've been so loyal to, been loyal to your suffering, to shift from that to a place of love. And to sit quietly and to open to breath and body and to become loving awareness itself is an invitation for this spirit to grow and awaken in you to shift from suffering to forgiveness, redemption, renewal. There was an old Hasidic rabbi who was asked by his students um, that there are special prayers we're supposed to make just as the day begins. But how can we know the moment of dawn when we're supposed to make these prayers? Is it when... You can see a tree in the distance and tell whether it's an olive tree or a plum tree? No, he said. Is it when you can see an animal on the hillside and know whether it's a, a sheep or a goat or a dog? No, he said. Is it when you can begin to discern the lines on your hand? Then you know the day has become begun. He said, no. He said, it's not until you can see any person walk toward you and know that this is your brother or your sister, that the day has begun, and until then, it's still dark. It's still night. Such a beautiful answer. It's not what you're looking at, said Henry David Thoreau. It's not what you're looking at that matters. It's what you see. So again, the rabbi said, I never asked for understanding. I asked for wonder. Hmm. Take time to sit. To walk in nature, sit under the trees, the bays, and the oaks. Just to listen, not to do anything. I mean, it's great to sit and listen to music and sit by the ocean. It's also good to do nothing at all, just to feel your body breathe itself and let life move through you, quiet yourself. Let your breath become a a friend that helps you just with each breath come into the reality of the present. Our poet laureate of a few years ago W.S. Merwin who writes, little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And as you learn to sit and meditate, use it as a way to quiet and open. Quiet the mind, open the body, open the heart. And don't fear change and suffering too much. Relax with it. You're always in change. You're always in transition. Anybody here not in transition? Raise your hand. You can have your $8 back. Right? So what are you going to do? I'm in transition. Relax. That's the game. Right? Sit quietly. Don't be afraid of change. Surf. You know? Enjoy it. As best you can. And rest in loving awareness. Be the spacious awareness that is your true nature. Feel the breath, breathe itself. Notice the river of feelings and thoughts. And sense the big dance that you're a part of. Remember that Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Or the line from the Buddha where he says, if you put, a spoon of salt in a cup and drink it, it's salty. But if you put the same spoon of salt in a lake, the water is pure and clear. Make your mind like the lake or the sky. Spacious, loving awareness. says, Ah, oh, look at this, this too, this too. Every particle of the world is a mirror, and each atom lies the blazing light of a thousand suns. Cleave the heart of a raindrop; a hundred oceans will flow forth. Look closely at a grain of sand; the seed of a thousand mountains can be seen. The foot of an ant is larger than an elephant. A drop of water is no different than the Nile. In the heart of a barley corn lies the fruit of innumerable harvests. In the pupil of the eye, an endless heaven. And through the inner chamber, though the inner chamber of the heart is small, all the worlds are at home there. This is from Mahmud Shabhistari. You know, every moment has the mystery in it, every breath. And to remember it, just to stop, puts everything in perspective, makes space, allows love. And if you need to, then heal your body, forgive your lover, tell your story, write a poem, make a piece of art. And after you get quiet, then look around. And if somebody's hungry, cook something really good. You know, love them and feed them. Do something beautiful. Serve, dance, give in some way or other. This from Pablo Casal, the great cellist. He says, the answer to life is not so very complicated. A human can do something for peace without having to jump into politics. Each of us has inside us a basic decency and goodness. If we listen to it and act on it, we are giving a great deal of what the world needs most. It's not complicated, but it takes a certain courage. It takes courage for a person to listen to their own goodness, to trust it and act on it. Do you dare be yourself? This is the question that counts. Take the time to sit, relax in the middle of change. It's the way that it is. Feel your breath breathe itself in the river of experiences, and become the loving awareness that you are. Do what you need, heal your body, do your forgiveness, make your art, and look around and give something beautiful to the world. This is what makes you happy, actually. Turns out that happiness, all the modern science studies show, that you're happier giving than getting, turns out. I mean, yes, you need to take care of yourself. I don't mean don't become the great, you know, codependent taking care of everybody, because compassion as a circle isn't complete unless it includes one other person. Do you know who that is? Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, yourself, right? <laughs> so, is this compassionate for everyone, including myself, is the question. But then, go for it. You know, what else, what better thing to do? Mary Oliver, she writes about the Buddha's last instruction. Where is it? I th- Every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green, I think of the Buddha and the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. I think of the Buddha, an old man, he lay down between two sal trees. He might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that worried crowd and said, Make of yourself a light. Make of yourself a lamp. Become a light and illuminate the world. Such a pleasure to sit together. Such a pleasure to have a moment's quiet in this summer evening. you get to go out under the stars. I thank you for your kind attention to yourself and these words, take whatever is useful. And I'll let the gift of this presence and tenderness be there in all that you touch thank you take your time no hurry and drive politely out there. It's crowded.